0: Friends, this morning, uh, as we are back um, into our sermon series that we sort of left off uh, before uh, Christmas, I'll encourage you to open to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, we'll be reading from verse 5 through 9. And as you are opening your Bibles there, if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in a chair in front of you. You may find this on page number 998. If you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV Bible, we would love to, for you to take one of the Bibles that we have in the pews, and we'd love for you to have it and read it and use it for your own spiritual growth. We are back in our sermon series through the book of Titus. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order upright holy and disciplined he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it amen this is the reading of god's word for our hearts would you pray with me asking god to bless the preaching of his word father we are thankful that you have revealed your ways to us the only way we can know about you is based on what you have revealed to us about you. Thank you for the scriptures which you have inspired, which you have uh, preserved so that we might know of your truth, of who you are, of what you have declared. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we pray for our hearts, that they might be tender, that they might be open, that they might be willing to listen. We pray that you would give us discernment, clarity, and that you would use this word, For our sanctification, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, we are working our way through this book. A book that ultimately, if you were to summarize it in a few words, uh, it it would be this way. The book of Titus is about sound doctrine leading to godliness. Sound doctrine leading to godliness. Godliness. We saw, as we began the sermon series quite a few weeks ago, prior to, prior to Thanksgiving, actually, we saw that an important part of, of the life of the Christian to grow in godliness, uh, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, is that he is a part of a life of a local congregation, that he gathers regularly with believers, that he, that he lives under the shepherding of a congregation. And, and, and this letter is written to Titus, to give him instructions about how to set these churches to be in good order. And a particular priority and a particular element that a church would be in good order so that Christians might grow in the knowledge of the Lord, an important part of churches to be in good order is that they would have the appropriate leadership. We started looking um, quite a few weeks ago at the importance of elders in the life of a local church. Based on verses 5 and 7, and I'm going to summarize here some of the things we've said quite a few weeks ago, just to bring this back to our memory. We said that a plurality of elders provides order in the life of the church. We also said that a plurality of elders are called to oversee the life of the church and to be God's stewards over the church. No other office is given this charge, this responsibility. And we saw that this responsibility is not given just to one person, that there should be a plurality of men who serve as pastors, as elders, as shepherds, as overseers. And that this plurality of elders are to be appointed for this task. It's not just enough to have men who act like shepherds without that responsibility publicly affirmed. They are to be appointed, they must be publicly entrusted with this task of shepherding. Then we started looking at what are the qualifications for the men who are to serve in this role. And we have looked at the beginning of verses 6 and 7. This is not the only list of qualifications in the New Testament, but since we're going through the book of Titus, we're looking through these qualifications uh, in more detail. We saw that God... Is the one who determines who should be overseers over the church. He determines the qualifications for the men who are to work and serve in this role. Most of these qualifications, if you look at this list, most of these qualifications are not unique to elders. It's actually surprising how ununique unique these qualifications are, meaning they are things responsibilities and goals for every Christian, most of them, with the exception of a few. Most of them are things that are required or expected from every Christian, and we will look at that later this morning. The overarching qualification for an elder is that he must be above reproach. This qualification is mentioned twice. Did you notice in verse uh, 6 and in verse uh, 7, we see if anyone is above reproach, Well, what does this mean? Does it mean that he must be perfect? That he must be sinless? No, we already looked at that, that this qualification of being above reproach is not about being sinless or perfect. Uh, I love how D.A. Carson summarized this uh, explanation of what it means to be above reproach when he said that there's no obvious, being above reproach means that there's no obvious inconsistency or flaw that everyone agrees is there and serves as a reproach to the man. This requirement of being above reproach is repeated again in verse 7, and Paul describes to us in the rest of the qualifications, in a way he is describing to us more specifically what are the areas of being above reproach. In verse 6, we see that being above reproach, first of all, involves a person's family life. How he relates to his wife and children. Friends, it's amazing that this qualification would be a requirement for a church leader. How a man relates to his wife and his children, if he's married and if he has children, uh, speaks volumes of whether or not he is ready or qualified. He's supposed to be a one-woman man. And we saw when we looked at this closely uh, last time that this is not limited simply to, to speaking about someone's marital status, but it speaks about marital fidelity and marital godliness. Someone's marital life can either qualify or disqualify someone from being a, a man of, 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 of reproach. Having children that are faithful is another important qualification here. And as we saw, this relates to not so much being having children who are believers as much as having children who are faithful, who are uh, submissive, who understand God's authority over them because the father and the mother but especially the father's responsibility to shepherd and teach the children in the ways of God. And uh, a father's role in how he involves his own, himself in the life of, of the family and teaching his family speaks volumes about whether or not he's ready to teach people in the church and to have responsibility with the teaching office of the church. And starting with verse 7 in particular, this list of qualifications, of details, begins a long list of one-word qualifications. Qualifications. And we're going to be looking at this long list of qualifications today. Now, we will not cover all the one word qualifications. Actually, just briefly, if you look at the in verse seven, it starts off with five negative qualifications, what an elder should not be, and then goes on to six positive qualifications, what an elder should be. Um, It's again, it's interesting to notice that these qualifications are about character and personal life more than about what someone has accomplished in his life. And then in verse 9, the last verse about the qualifications, it gives us three more uh, descriptions, three more qualifications, that actually take a little bit more time to explain. So, our hope today, because we're in the midst of this list of qualifications, our hope today is to work through four of these uh, qualifications, and we will continue this list next week, We already looked at the qualification of what it means not to be arrogant. Uh, An elder must not be arrogant. That means he's not supposed to be uh, self-willed or self-dependent. Arrogance affects our relationships. Have you ever been around an arrogant person? Rubs you the wrong way. Nobody likes to be around arrogant people. But the greatest liability about a person being arrogant and also placed in a, church, in a position of church leadership is not just a liability towards other people. It's a fact that an arrogant person will not be willing and humble to listen to God. He'll be self-willed. He'll know what to do on his own. He won't have the desire to listen to what God says about the church or for the church. He'll be more self-dependent than God-dependent. Arrogance is not just about boasting. Arrogance is about being overly self-confident, or confident on our own resources. So she should not be arrogant. Well, this, all this is reviewed. Now we get into some new territory. Four more negative qualifications, or negative things that a person should not be if he is considered for the office of shepherd, or pastor, or elder. An elder must not be quick-tempered. An elder must not be quick-tempered. Look again at verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Friends, just a a pause here. As we're looking through this, we could go through this very quickly. Don't be this, don't be that, don't be this, don't be that, be this, be that. The point of, of taking time to work through each of these qualifications is not only that we understand it, what it means, but we would be equipped in knowing how to assess it in ourselves or in someone else. And most of these qualifications, like I said, especially those who are today, that we're covering today, are things that are for all Christians. So even if you don't plan ever to consider uh, to be an elder, you might say, why, am I, why should I listen to this? For one, is because these qualifications are things we should all pursue. Second, even if you will never be an elder or don't think about being an elder, uh, if the church will be electing elders, uh, whether vocationally or lay elders, in a con- church like ours, in a congregational church governance, that means that we ask the members to affirm all those who are being put in that office. That means you as a member need to know how to assess, how to examine, how to, um, how to assess someone, whether or not they have this qualification. So our hope in going slow through these is to both to equip you in understanding, but also to know how to apply this. So what does it mean to be quick-tempered? It refers to a man who becomes angry quickly, without control, and often. The Bible warns us about people who are given to anger. For instance, in the book of Proverbs 22, 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger. Wow. Nor go with a wrathful man. Proverbs 29, 22. A man of wrath... Stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Friends, if we look at every one of us in our own lives, it would be foolish or unrealistic for us to say that we have never been angry. Who doesn't get angry? Can someone keep his calm all the time in an absolute way? No. I I love the story of uh, Hudson Taylor. He once confessed. He said, My greatest temptation is to lose my temper over the slackness and inefficiency so disappointing in those on whom I depend. It is no use to lose my temper, only kindness. But, oh, it is such a trial. Some of you this morning resonate with Hudson Taylor and how the, the, the temptation to, to lose your temper is a real struggle for some of you. And some of you are fighting that and doing the best you can and depending on God's grace and seeking His grace to, to, to help you through those moments of temptation. Now, let, me, let me tell you that simply because you might struggle, and this is a difficult area that you're struggling with, with, with temper, doesn't necessarily disqualify you from from this in, in this regard, the question is, are you quick tempered? Do you give into it? Do you let it rain in your life? Do you just give it a free rein? The qualification of not being te- quick tempered, when we think about the qualification for elders, speaks about a pattern of giving into anger when a person does it over small things, over insignificant things, over random things. A person becomes impatient or irritated very quickly and shows his anger quickly and often Uh, aristotle the the great ancient philosopher said quick-tempered persons lose no time being angry and do so with those they ought not over things they ought not and far more than they ought my friends realize this is a matter not just for elders or for elder candidates James, in his letter, in James chapter 1, verse 20, he says to all Christians, Be slow to anger, for the anger of of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Friends, think how much damage anger can do in a church. When its members respond in anger towards one another or towards a situation, friends it doesn't take many angry people to cause a big fight it just takes one and then for others to respond in sinful ways to one's man one person's anger elders must be men who know how to avoid responding in anger now here's some application questions for you to consider if a person or yourself or someone else how, how he's doing and how, how to evaluate this, this quick-temperedness. Quick is a man generally able to keep his calm? Is he a man who can, keep, uh, can be peaceable and self-controlled, even in stressful si- situations and even with difficult people? As a pattern, as a general pattern of his life, is an elder a man who acts more like an agent of stability And peace, or more like someone who stirs up anger. An important part of shepherding God's church is that an elder deals with people. That's That's one of the significant parts of shepherding. And he deals with people, some of whom are more easy than others. And he deals with problems, some of which are more easy than others. It's greatly important that an elder knows how to control his emotions. So he must be quick-tempered. Ask yourself if the person you're considering, uh, the the men we might be considering for elders are people who are quick-tempered. Another qualification, a second in the sermon that we're looking at, is that an elder must not be a drunkard. An elder must not be a drunkard. Look again at verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. Friends, drunkenness is a sin. I know sometimes churches choose to avoid speaking about the sin of, of drinking or drunkenness. Um, being a drunkard disqualifies someone from being an elder. But friend, being a drunkard not only disqualifies someone from being an elder, it also disqualifies someone from entering heaven. Did you know that in 1 Corinthians 6:9 through10, Paul says to all Christians, he says, "Or oh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, will inherit." The kingdom of God. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The sin of drunkenness should not be treated lightly by Christians. When we see someone fall into it, in love we should come alongside that person, address it in love, and seek to help them uh, get out of it. Friend, if if you struggle with this particular sin, we encourage you to seek help from Christians, from the church, from other believers, and from the various resources that we can come alongside you and and bring to you, that we can help you fight it. Now let's be clear, the qualification for not being drunk um, is not an absolute prohibition against drinking. But it's a prohibition against one's dependency on it and one's sin of drunkenness. So ask yourself, as we work through this qualification, if a man does drink occasionally, does he practice sobriety and self-control in this area? Has he fallen into the sin of drunkenness? Is he easy about it? Does he take that lightly? Is there a pattern of drunkenness in his life, either publicly or privately? My friends, we should ask a prospective elder uh, how he deals with this matter. And we should ask him if there's any other substances on which he has become addicted. Friends, again, drunkenness is a sin for all Christians. Elders must be examples of men who are not given to the sin of drunkenness. And the next one is an elder must not be Violent. Look again, verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent. Now, you might say, Pastor, this one, really? Do you really need to put that in in this qualification list, violence? I mean, we're talking about a church. You know, people should be kind to each other. Friends, I've heard from Christians occasionally, not very often, but occasionally. I've heard of situations where in a very difficult church situation, members would threaten each other, even physically. At one point, there was a situation where a church, uh, members of the church started taking up chairs against others. It shouldn't be that way. It should never be that way. But because we're sinful, it often creeps in in various ways, creeps in. Happens so Paul says an elder should not be violent. Now let's be clear the the word for violence is not limited only to physical violence. The word used for violence here could also uh, be translated and describing a person who is a bully. A bully is a person who uses strength or power to harm or intimidate those who are weaker to bully is to treat someone abusively now to understand this qualification better paul in his list that he gives in first timothy 3 which we read earlier in the service he speaks about this qualification of not being violent and he also immediately puts a positive opposite of it he says in first timothy 3 2 and 3 not violent but gentle Not violent, but gentle. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul speaks this way about the Lord's servants. Then the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, in a church setting, there will be times when people will have differences of opinion. That's not true here. Elsewhere. No, that's not true. In any church, even ours, there will be differences of opinion. Some are over smaller matters. Some are over more significant matters. Well, friends, it's important for an elder to know how to treat everyone, even those who are opposing a particular view, to treat them with gentleness, with care. Now, gentleness does not mean lack of being firm or lack of having convictions. Gentleness does not mean that we should be lenient on the truth or fail to protect the flock from wolves or false teaching. But assuming that we're not dealing with a a wolf or a false teaching in manners that are charitably, uh, there could be differences in a charitable way, we should... We should treat one another with kindness, and elders in particular should be very careful of the temptation to to manipulate, of the temptation to use some sort of uh, emotional or, or force or or other ways in the life of the church to get his way in a in a forceful, violent way. Even though that violence does not include actions, violence as actions, friends, violence is not just a matter of actions, but it includes the heart. Remember the words of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In God's eyes, it's not simply the physical act of violence that matters but the heart that leads to that violence. Violence, dear friends, is a matter of the heart as well as of actions. Our attitudes toward others, our attitudes which may cause more damage, not because of what we do, but because of what we say. Oh, friends, how much damage, how much violence can happen in a congregation by the words we can use against one another. There are times when a person can hold a grudge or can harness and hold closely bitterness caused years ago. And they respond back to the other person or the other people um, with a spirit of revenge, with a spirit of retaliation, with a spirit of attacking one or more people because of, what's, because of what has been done in the past. Well, friends, ask yourself, is a person you are considering as an elder of the church, can an elder react with gentleness even when facing opposition? Can an elder refrain from mer- making personal attacks, not just physically, but even by his words? Can a person respond by not retaliating or striking back Quote, opponents. We should ask a person the very uncomfortable question about violence in the home. It's one of the sins we don't talk much about. Is a prospective elder giving to the practice of violence towards his wife or children? Friends, elders are men characterized by gentleness as opposed to a violent spirit or a violent action. Elders set the example for the church, what it means to have a a nonviolent culture for the rest of the community. And the last category we will look at this morning, an elder must not be greedy for gain. Look at verse 7. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the other list of qualifications, Paul speaks about this qualification by using a different expression. There in Timothy, he speaks about not being a lover of money. Here in Titus, he speaks about not being greedy for gain. Now, it's not that money is the issue. It's not that gain is the problem, but the love of money, the greed for gain. It's not that that we should... Not desire, that we should desire to be poor, that's not the issue. It's that the love of gain as, can be a, a, a significant danger. Whether someone is constantly thinking uh, about gaining more money or thinking about gaining at whatever price, the issue is a matter of the heart, greed, that uncomfortable or uncontrollable, uh, it's, it's not uncomfortable, it is comfortable, that's a problem. Uh, it's a comfortable desire, but it's an uncontrollable and unhealthy desire and hunger for having more. This expression can also be translated as shamefully greedy for money or fond of dishonest gain. I love how one, uh, one Bible uh, commentator said, Elders cannot be the kind of men who always are interested in money. Friends, greedy people are disqualified not only from being elders, they're also disqualified from getting into heaven. Again, I'm going to go back to the list of 1 Corinthians 6 that I read to you earlier. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves. And you might say, I am not any of those. But then he goes on and says, nor the greedy. Nor the greedy. Friends, it's a sad reality when non-Christians, or what might be called former Christians, or disenchanted Christians, um, when they have dropped out of churches, and they accuse the church or Christian leaders for being all about money. It's sad. How sad when we hear certain uh, popular preachers on on TV, perhaps, uh, promising blessings to people if they would give a gift to their ministry. Sadly, sadly, the greed for gain can infect churches. They can infect church leaders. They can infect church members. This is why elders must be men who are not greedy for gain. And the church should be clear about this particular qualification, just as the church should be clear about all of them. It became a great trap for the religious leaders in the time of Jesus as well. This is not just a new problem today. Did you know that there was one time when Jesus became angry? And perhaps even borderlining on an act of, Violence, if you will, when he took a whip and he started cleansing the temple. Do you know why he did that? What caused in him? What was that zeal that consumed him? Because its re- religious leaders have transformed the temple into a, ho- into, a, quote, into a house of trade, to use the words of Jesus. The religious leaders have turned the temple from being a house of prayer for all nations into a den of robbers. What an indictment. At one point, Jesus speaks, and he says, you can't serve both God and money. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll serve the one and and hate the other. And immediately after that, the next verse after that teaching, here's what Luke says. It says about the Pharisees, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Interesting. The Pharisees are described as being lovers of money. And here Paul says about elders, he tells Timothy, an elder should not be a lover of money, a greedy for gain. Now, dear friends, if you hear Or see that certain Christians or certain church leaders or certain churches are all about getting your money. Friends, realize you might be right in being confrontational about that and having a hard time with that. But I want to tell you, Jesus had a hard time with that too. That is not Christianity. That is not the Christianity that Jesus would want to uphold that is not the church that jesus is trying to build those are not the leaders that god wants in front of the churches true christians and biblical church leaders should be free from the love of money and from greed of more gain friends realize that the true gospel presents us a message about jesus that heals us of our love of money The gospel presents Jesus as someone who is more worthy of our love than money and possessions. Friends, the way to fight against the love of money or the greed for gain is not by trying to go to a monastery and just take the path of of the life that says no to everything and thinking that if you have less, you must be more spiritual. The path of of fighting against the love of money or against greed for gain is not simply renouncing possessions. The path for that is the gospel. So realizing that in Jesus, we have something way more precious, way more valuable than anything that money, silver or gold can give us. I love how Jesus describes the kingdom of God, the story by the gospel, how he gives two parables about it in a way that helps us understand the, the preciousness of Jesus. At one point in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because he found a treasure. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like that. When people realize that the gospel awakens us, opens our eyes, makes us aware that there is a treasure that is way bigger, way better, way longer lasting than anything that we can have. And that treasure is Jesus. Is that which Jesus offers us. Then Jesus goes on and says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Friends, a Christian is someone who understands and who has come to embrace that Jesus and his kingdom are more precious and more worthy than anything this world could offer us. This is so because we understand that Jesus makes us right with God. Through Christ, our enmity, which was caused by our sin and rebellion against God, our enmity against God is now dissolved. We are now put in the right relationship with God, and it's not just that. God not only cleanses us of our sin, He not only wipes away the guilt of our rebellion, He also does something else. He makes us heirs of the riches promised to his son jesus so when we respond to jesus we become heirs of the heavenly inheritance i love how first peter speaks about this to the believers in first uh, to the to the believers to whom he writes he says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, God awakens us, gives us a new hope, a new birth, not just to a new hope, but to a new inheritance. Oh, friends, realize that in Jesus, we are given tremendously more that what we can ever procure for ourselves or fight for ourselves, there is a a glitch, if you will. There is a bummer to all this. A bummer, humanly speaking. It's a heavenly inheritance. In other words, you cash it out when you die. It's yours for you to enjoy, not for those who remain after you, This is for you. This heavenly inheritance is not simply in the here and now. It's what we will be given when we go to be in glory with Jesus. But here's the good news in this bummer news. That this inheritance, no one can take away. No one can steal away. It's unfading. It's uncorruptible. It's everlasting. Friends, when we understand the gospel... When we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us and for our sin and for our relationship with God and for our inheritance to become heirs of the riches of God, friends, realize we are called to repent and trust in Jesus. If you've never repented and trusted in Christ to save you, oh friend, I encourage you today, respond to God. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you as soon as the service is over. You can find me in the hallway or as you leave the sanctuary. I encourage you in Jesus, we have a treasure for which it's worth losing everything else, including our lives. That's why Christians, when we become Christians, when we understand the gospel, we become healed of a lot of issues in our lives. One of those healings is the healing of the love of money. Because we realize That the stuff that we have accumulated or we're trying to accumulate is only temporal, corruptible, stealable. It can go away quickly. It's never going to be enough, ever. Therefore, we put our hope in something that is eternal, an an eternal inheritance. That's why, dear friends, when we think about church leaders, about those who we might call to have as elders in our congregation, we must look through this qualification. Are they free of the love of money? But how do you determine that? It's hard to determine it in your own life, let alone in someone else's life. So let me give you some application questions to help us think through how do we assess whether or not we ourselves or someone else Is free from the greed of gain or from the love of money. Here's one question Does a prospective elder practice generous and sacrificial giving? One of the best ways to observe whether or not we're free from the love of money is if we give generously. And not just generously, sacrificially. It's one thing for a wealthy man to give generously, it's a different, and that generosity will look different to a poor man not just giving generously, but also sacrificially. When we consider a man for elder, we should consider whether he has given generously to the work of the church, which may also be a measure of his commitment to the church. Also, we should ask, does he give to the needs of others as opportunity permits, or is he a hoarder? Does a man live in uncontrolled debt? Are his debts sign that he does not know how to live within his means? Is a man living above his means or below his means? Some of these questions, by the way, are from a, a book, um, a very healthy and very helpful book called Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons by Thabiti and Abula. Here's another question that Thabiti gives. Uh, is a man given to overwork in the pursuit of gain while his family or spiritual life suffers? Is he willing to bend the Lord's word or commands in order to justify riches? Will he make, here's another one, will he make a professional and family decisions to pursue gain at the expense of faithful involvement in the church, or has he denied certain opportunities in order to make spiritual objectives a priority? Let me post about one of our members. uh, last few months in our congregation decided, to quit his, this particular job and get another one so that he could have more time both for his family and for his church family. Praise God that someone would actually say, I, I, I want to have another job that allows me more time to have both with my family and also with believers in my church. Praise God for that. We should also ask how a prospective elder thinks about finances for the life of the church. Uh, someone can be a hoarder personally, Well, someone can be a hoarder corporately, too. Uh, What about times when following God's commands might risk losing someone who is wealthy and lose his giving? Would a prospective elder rather disobey God in order to keep someone's check coming to the church? Or would they rather obey God even at the risk of losing a wealthy, a good check? Friends, there are all kinds of ways we can assess and examine whether or not a prospective elder is inflected or influenced by the love of money and by the greed for gain. In talking about these things, someone said, in talking about these things, can the current leadership discern whether a prospective elder's heart is attached to the world or is there evidence of excellence in the grace of giving? Friends, here are some questions that we, uh, we want you to be thinking about and uh, consider as we are looking at these qualifications. We are considering these qualifications because it's important who is an elder or who are elders in the life of the church. It's important for members to know how to assess these qualifications, how to uh, examine others, even unofficially, just in their own minds, um, so that we may know when com- time comes to affirm someone or some, uh, in the plural, for elders, that we would know how to do that. Because we will continue this list with, of qualifications, Lord willing, next Sunday. And I encourage you to, um, to come with a desire to understand that these qualifications are not just for elders. They're also goals for all of us. Because elders are called to be examples for the flock, to show members, to show Christians how to live and how to follow Jesus corporately. Would you pray with me? Thank you, O God, for giving us clear instructions in your Word about what the church should be, how the church should be led, and who should it be led by, and what are the qualifications for people who are called to be stewards of the church, your stewards over the church. Father, we pray that as a congregation you would enable us to understand these matters, enable us to know how to assess them, enable us to know how to call and have leaders over us who meet your qualifications. We pray that your grace would abound and be given to us in significantly great measures as we begin this year. We pray this in the name of Christ.